Many years ago, I was a student pastor in Ontario, and uh, it was New Year's Day, and I was tasked with doing, the, I was working with another pastor, an older pastor, but I was tasked with doing the New Year's Day service and the sermon. And so I did Psalm 126, which is a lovely little psalm, and uh, that sermon was actually done <laughs> um, by a typewriter. I mean, I'm old enough to remember typewriters, okay, and that... That manuscript has been lost. I, have, I think it went out into a landfill somewhere in Ontario. But, um, but I have gone back to that psalm because that's still here. And it is a, a lovely little piece. It's one of those songs of ascent. And it talks about beginnings. And as we've heard, you know, this is a season that we're at the beginning of a year. And in a sense, you've got a calendar that's brand new. You haven't put in a lot of dates and events yet. And it's almost like a chance at rebirth. And this is something we find a little bit in Psalm 126. And it kind of works off of the idea of, um, of planting and reaping um, and taking in the harvest. And so let's read Psalm 126. Song of Ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy carrying sheaves with them. So, Psalm 126. Now, this is a psalm that will speak to a farmer's heart because it talks about sowing and reaping and gathering in the harvest. Um, nowadays, farming is a pretty much an industrial operation, but even then, I think we can kind of appreciate the idea of bringing in a, a full harvest. Now, in the time of the Bible, that psalm would then speak to most hearts because most people would be uh, in some form of farming. Now, in the villages, you might have craftsmen, you know, weavers and potters and metalsmiths who would do their trades. Uh, but I would say even then, they probably did a little bit of farming on the side as well. So everybody would know the 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 the. the what it meant to sow the seed and watch it grow and to harvest it. Everyone would know how satisfying it is to bring in a full harvest. About 10 years ago, I was part of a, a pastor's study group that traveled through the, the land of the Bible, through Egypt, Jordan, and Israel. And in fact, that's where I met Grant. We were on that trip together and drove many miles through those three countries and while we were traveling, especially through Israel, it occurred to me that we were passing fields where the singers of psalms like this once sang their songs. Now today, people are still working the land. Some of them are doing it in ways that have barely changed in, since biblical times. And in some places, it's a modern industrial um, system like we have here. And as in Canada, the, the kind of farming they do is often shaped by the, the environment they're working in. 
So a little bit about these countries, just a little bit of a farm tour through the three countries we visited. And we'll begin with Egypt, uh, the first place we visited. And I have a picture. There it is. This is Egypt, a satellite picture. And uh, in Egypt, all agriculture, in fact, the existence of the country depends on the River Nile. And it shows up in that picture as that ribbon of green that goes from the south and ends up in that fan, that delta area in the top. And down in the bottom, you see that system of lakes. That's actually what formed when they put in the big dam a number of years ago. Before then, it was just one big, long river. And then on the sides, they would be irrigating. And they have to irrigate because Egypt gets basically no water. Uh, we spent a night in a place called Aswan. That's just where that big dam is. And uh, a little while later, we went about 200 kilometers north to a city called Luxor. And the average rainfall in those two cities per year is one millimeter. And that's it. So everything depends on irrigation from the Nile River. And as we were driving between those two cities, it was quite striking how many rivers we passed. Let's have the second picture. See, there's an irrigation ditch, and you can see there's farmland. And then the third picture is another, a bit more of the same. And again, this is rich farmland, although in the distance you can already see the sandy hills of the Sahara Desert. And if you go up out of that farming area and up onto the sand, in the distance there is nothing growing. It is one great big sandbox, the country of Egypt. And yet it's got very productive agriculture. Most of the land is cropped twice per year, sometimes three. Um, those of you who do sewing or quilting, you may know the reputation of Egyptian cotton. It's a lovely, soft fabric. Uh, apparently, in more recent years, they've been scaling back on the cotton to produce more food crops, like wheat and corn, sugarcane, rice, even fodder for the animals. I mean, camels, they have to eat too. Um, they produce citrus, dates, and grapes. Only 3% of the country is suitable for agriculture, and yet about a third to a quarter of the people are involved in the industry, and they produce food for a country of 80 million, 90 million people. It's, it's just one of the most amazing countries in the world because it's all on that river. So statistically, Egypt is you know, way up there in terms of the size of the country and the density of the population. But if you just measure only the habited, inhabited areas along the river, it's one of the most crowded countries in the world. Okay, then we visited a country called Jordan. And uh, in order to get there, we had to first pass through that Sinai Peninsula, which was very barren. There was nothing growing there except a few small trees. Um, I think they're called acacia trees. And I have a picture of one of those trees. It's not very big, and it just gives a little bit of shade, and yet there were four camels sitting underneath trying to stay cool. So that's, a, that's the Sinai. Um, but as we drove north, it started to get more green. And before too long, we saw sheep grazing. And that was one of the kinds of agriculture that has barely changed. I mean, the sheep herder was in a donkey. He had the herd of sheep behind him. 
the head sheep, whatever he's called, was wearing a bell, one of those cattle bells, and all the rest of them were just following him everywhere. They, they, they talk about sheep. Everybody's like, sheep means you just do everything the boss tells you to do. Well, that, 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 that comes from sheep herding. Um, Egypt, uh, Jordan is um, only about 6 or 7% of the country is good for agriculture. It's another desert country. Um, but they are expanding that. They're doing more irrigation and more dry land farming. And then you get to Israel. Uh, that's fourth picture. This is a picture of, yes, this is the greenhousing they're doing in Jordan. And you can see it's quite extensive. Um, I mean, there are parts of the Fraser Valley that look like that too. So this is, this is um, intense farming in a small area. Okay, in Israel, um, the agriculture industry is very developed and very modern. Uh, to give just one example... Some of you may know this. Um, the Israeli dairy cow is considered the world champion, according to the Israeli Dairy Board. Um, <laughs> vested interest, perhaps. But it, apparently, it, it has the highest milk and milk solid yields in the world. And then there's more. It, it's a very diverse agricultural system. They do wheat, sorghum, corn, citrus, and other fruits. There are large vineyard and palm orchard. I, Remember in that bus going past miles and miles and miles of date palms? Um, the flower growers are very successful, and um, they even have fish farms deep underground in the Negev Desert. So Israel's been called a world leader in innovation, and it's quite amazing. Only a fifth of the country is good for agriculture, and yet they feed, they provide 95% of their food needs. So, you know, Israel's in the news a lot right now, and it's been mentioned that, you know, it's a, there's a terrible, terrible war going on in Gaza. The pictures are just unspeakable. And so we often think of the Mideast as a place where there's just constant war all the time. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a legitimate thing to think. But it's also true that a lot of other things are happening. They are farming very successfully in the Mideast. So I have two pictures of Israel. This is taken from Mount Arbel. Um, and you can see in the far corner is a bit of water. That would be the Sea of Galilee. So on the top of those maps of Israel, you've got the Sea of Galilee and then the River Jordan going down to the Dead Sea. And then on this side, you get the um, Mediterranean Sea. So this is, um, this is the kind of the farm country around the north shore of Galilee. As you can see, it's got lots of orchards and vineyards. Um, I have a daughter who lives in, um, in the Okanagan, South Okanagan, um, just above Penticton. And that area reminds me a lot of Galilee. Galilee reminds me a lot of that. Um, it's beautiful water there, and it's used to do a lot of irrigating. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is not technically a sea. It's actually a lake. It's a freshwater lake, and uh, it's a lovely place to swim in and to just be there. Uh, the second picture is from a place called the Shefela, and that's kind of further to the west side. So you've got the Sea of Galilee, and then you've got that coastal plain, and then there's the hill country, and in between it, there's that transitional zone called the Shefela. And I'm kind of thinking that probably as that moist Mediterranean air starts climbing, it drops a lot of rain. 
And so the Shephelah is one of the few parts of Israel where they can farm without agriculture. And while we were there, they were bailing. And uh, I lived in ranch country in Alberta for, for a, a number of years. And <laughs> when we were in the Shephelah, it just felt like home. It was, that's what it looked like in Alberta, too. Okay, Psalm 126, it, it speaks to people who do this kind of work. It, it, it gives a picture of food growing through the seasons, from sowing to reaping to gathering in. And in this case, the sowing is done with tears and weeping, and the harvesting and the gathering of sheaves, that is done with, with songs of joy. So in balance, you would call this a good year. I mean, it began tough, but it ended really, really well, which means that that's the kind of year you'd prefer to have. Uh, The opposite would be a year that begins with joy and lots of optimism and hope for a wonderful year and ends with tears and weeping. Um, You'd rather have a miserable start and a strong finish than the other way around. It should be obvious, though, that this psalm is not strictly about farming and sowing and reaping. It's not even the main point. The the, the bigger story in that psalm is about God restoring the fortunes of his people. And when he did that, the psalm says, this was like a dream. We were filled with joy. And the tears and weeping gave way to songs of praise and worship. It was like a really good year on the farm. Now, the people who originally um, sang that psalm, they remembered the day when God restored the fortunes of Zion. Now, we can't be totally sure about that reference Um, But Zion is another name for the city of Jerusalem. And so very likely it refers to that time when the city was restored after the exile to to Babylon. So if you go deep into the Old Testament, if you go past the time of King David and all his victories and King Solomon and all his glories, and then through about 20 kings, some of them quite good and some of them quite awful, Then eventually the kingdom of Judah fell to the Babylonians. And that story is told in the book of Kings and in the book of Chronicles and also by the prophet Jeremiah. He was there when it happened. And so the city was put under siege. It was under siege for a year and a half until everybody inside was starving Uh, Then the walls were breached and the Babylonian army poured in. They captured the king, King Zedekiah, and they made him watch. Well, every one of his sons was executed. The whole royal line was wiped out while he watched. And then they put out his eyes and they took him to Babylon. They also took the best and the brightest of of, of the people of of, of that kingdom of Judah and that the, the story of Daniel remembers that time when the talented young men and women were taken to uh, Babylon and put into the royal courts. Now, there is another psalm that comes from that time, uh, Psalm 137. It, it has that kind of haunting memory of how bad it was and how, how great the suffering was. Here's Psalm 137. 
By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked for songs. Our tormented demanded songs of joy. They said, sing to us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? So the captors were tormenting their captives, and the captives were just too heartsick to sing their songs. And then, then that empire of Babylon fell to the Persians. And the Persian king, King Cyrus, he gave permission for the exiles to go back home. They could rebuild their city. They could rebuild their temple. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah, they tell that story. The story of the restoration. There would again be a holy place in Jerusalem. Again be a temple where the Most High would have his dwelling place. And that's what Psalm 126 remembered. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. And then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. It was absolutely wonderful. But that's only the first part of the story. Because in the second half of the psalm, that mood again goes dark. It's like God has to restore fortunes again. And that psalm is a prayer for that. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the, like, like, like the streams in the Negev. You know, Negev is in the south end of, of uh, Israel, below the Dead Sea. It's very dry there. And the ground is parched for most of the year. The riverbeds are dried out. They're called wadis for that reason. And, and then there's this brief time when the rains come. And the wadis become rushing streams. The rain falls long, quick and hard. And for a little while, the desert is green again. And, and, and for a while, the singers can sing their songs about the wonders of God in the Negev. And the psalmist asking, restore us again, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Now what happened here? Why, why were these people, you know, back to God again with yet another heartache and yet another appeal for help? I mean, are these the kind of people that always need help? Are they like, you know, failures, you know, who get a handout and, and, and do better for a while and then fall backwards again and cry out for help again. Now that could sound harsh, um, but there might be something to it. Actually, it wouldn't be all that strange because people like that are actually a pretty big club. They sound very human. I mean, they're flawed and sometimes weak and they live in a messy world where things go bad and then become good and then become bad again. I mean, in all honesty, this sounds like a lot of us. So God rescued his people from Babylon and it's, it's not like they'd never need help again. They'd be rebuilding a city and rebuilding a temple. 
but that have days when their faith was weak and their arms were tired and there were enemies still in their faces and sometimes they just wouldn't care. There would still be times when they had every reason to say, restore our fortunes, O God. But they would also have this, the memory that God has done it before. We've been in this dark place before, and he's been our help, our stay before. God never said he would do it only once. Now, here is the lesson in the psalm that we should hear. And that is, if you want a big and happy harvest, you have to do some sowing. If you want to carry big sheaves off the field, then you are going to have to seed it first. And you might have to irrigate it too. And you might have to do pest control. You're going to have to pay attention to this field. It's not like, it's like getting a, a rebuilt city and a rebuilt temple. God can give it to you for sure. But it is a maintenance item. So you can sing your songs of joy, but you will also have to do the things that keep those songs of joy alive. Show some effort. Help people in need. Make a difference for God and for good. So don't expect a handout because God doesn't want to restore only city walls and city uh, and temple buildings. He wants to restore you. He wants to rebuild your life. He wants to make you into the people that you were meant to be. And he wants to make your life into the life you were meant to have. And one way he will do that is to put you to work. Now, we're part of this Protestant Christian tradition, and and we make a lot of the fact that we are saved by grace through faith. Paul has that famous line in his letter to the Ephesians, for by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. This is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. In other words, according to the Bible, We don't do a thing. We can't do a thing to earn our way into salvation. We must take it as God's gift. Now, I have no argument with that, obviously. But I would also point out that God does not promise a work-free life. For sure not. Because in that same text, Paul tells us that we are God's workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared for us to do. In other words, God wants us to get busy. He saved us so that we could do some good in the world. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Let me ask you at the beginning of the year, what are you sowing? What are you sowing in the life you live, 
in the work you do, in the way you do the work? How are you using your time? How are you using your talents? How are you using your treasure? So generously. Scatter the seed far and wide. And then take God at his word when he says you will reap with songs of joy. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we see fields being sown and fields becoming lush and full and harvests being taken in with songs of joy. Oh Lord, let that be our model for the year to come, that we can use our time, our talents, our treasure in the service, in your service, for your good in love for you and in love for our brothers and sisters. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.